This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. My name is Grady Hendricks. I am a horror writer, and that means I spend way too much time thinking about haunted dolls and vampires. My new book, unfortunately, is a haunted doll book called How to Sell a Haunted House. With seven works of fiction under his belt, Grady Hendrix is known exclusively as a horror writer, who includes more than a touch of humor in his work. His latest book, How to Sell a Haunted House, features a brother and sister who have drifted apart but are forced to reunite to settle their parents' estate, an estate which includes a bevy of creepy dolls and puppets who show that they have minds of their own. I recently spoke with Hendrix about how this story was inspired by a trip to his mother's home, family dynamics, and his deep horror of the Velveteen Rabbit. I'm Beth Golay from KMEW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Okay, so we'll try to keep this as spoiler-free as possible, but can you give our listeners a, a brief description of the book? Sure. Uh, How to Sell a Haunted House is about two adult siblings, Mark and Louise, who can't stand each other and live far apart. And they have to reunite uh, uneasily when their parents pass away and they need to clean out and sell their childhood home, which, spoiler alert, it's right there in the title, happens to be haunted. Uh, What doesn't happen in the title, what you don't get from the title is that it's haunted by puppets and dolls, which is disgusting. And I feel very apologetic about that. We actually talked about putting a label on the front, a large red label saying, warning, haunted dolls. But we worried that would turn off too many readers. (laughs) So we just let that unpleasant surprise sink in once you've already paid your money and taken the book home. Okay, so a recent New York Times review described How to Sell a Haunted House as a gripping, wildly entertaining exploration of childhood horrors. So talk to me about how this idea came about. Sure. This was a book I wrote during the the thick of the pandemic is when I started it. And I think like a lot of people, the pandemic made us really confront our parents' mortality. Uh, Even if they didn't pass away, you know, we all were aware that our parents were really uniquely vulnerable. And I had gone home. My mom had some health issues and I went I went down to South Carolina to stay with her for a little bit. And I was out in the garage getting, I think, paper towels. And I looked around at all this stuff she had. I thought, my God, one day I'm going to have to clean all this out. And it made me start thinking about not only how when someone passes on, we, we, we're we left dealing with all the things they leave behind. And it's not just their stuff, their piles of National Geographic and their shoes and their clothes, but it's also memories, stories. And what's a ghost besides something that a dead person leaves behind? And it also made me think about this strange relationship we all have with inanimate objects. I've had to clean out a friend's house after they died, and it is very, very hard. It is it is overwhelming, and the stuff just feels like you're outnumbered by the stuff. And once you start making that stuff things that can make eye contact with you, like dolls, I mean, <laughs> the horror story writes itself. You know, the last time we spoke in 2021, we talked about how I try to avoid horror, but I can't seem to resist the chance to speak with you. And I received a card from you in the mail that featured a drawing from a scene in the book. So I, you know, I knew to expect a little bit of gore, 
But then when I started reading this, I thought dolls and puppets. And I, I even recall clowns. And I thought, geez, thanks, Grady. So what is it about dolls and puppets and clowns? Why are many, including me, creeped out by them? Right. Well, I think it's a natural human response when we encounter our predators. You know, we all know deep down that one day a clown will be our doom. <laughs> but really, it's, it's, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that dolls and puppets are the inanimate object that can make eye contact. And so they seem to have some form of life, but we know they're not alive, but we kind of worry that they are. So they exist in kind of this uncanny valley. They're not alive, but they kind of aren't dead either. And we all had stuffed animals growing up that we really invested a lot of emotions and, and almost sentience in. And I think most of us, if we have a conscience, may feel a little pang that we left those guys behind. Like maybe they weren't ready to be left behind. And we have strange relationships with inanimate objects like our cars. We yell at our car when it's, you know, don't break that. Don't you dare break down, <laughs> you know, our phones. We say, you better restart, you know, where our laptops, please, please, please don't crash. So we just have such strange relationships with, with inanimate objects. And I think they're relationships that really get past a lot of our defenses that we have up when we're dealing with people. I want to talk specifically about puppets for a minute. There's a line from the book which reads, a puppet is a possession that possesses the possessor. Where did your idea come from for the description of Pupkin? Did you have a puppet as a child? There's another line in the book that comes right from my life. Once upon a time, I belonged to a radical puppet collective. And I did a lot of puppetry and, you know, we were working with really huge, this was back when I was in university, but we were working with really huge puppets that you wear. So they're almost like a mask in some ways. And, you know, there's a lot of cultures that believe that puppets and masks and, and using them for performance, you get possessed by them and you feel it when you work with puppets and you work with masks and things, you can tell it has a personality. It's almost like it wears you to some extent. And it gives you this invulnerable force field because you can do anything on stage if you're using a puppet or wearing a mask because it's not quite you. And uh, so it's a really, really strange experience. It's very uncanny. And I highly encourage it. You know, if, if you think I sound like I'm full of it, make a sock <laughs> puppet. Just get an old sock, make a little sock puppet, put it on your hand. In a few minutes, you're going to be talking to it. And it, after a few minutes, ask yourself, where's the will coming from? Like this puppet's interacting with me. It's talking to me. Is that me talking to myself? I mean, it is, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels like something else is on the end of your arm. Okay. I want to shift gears then away from the puppets. And <laughs> I want to talk about your, you know, the two main characters in your book, Louise and Mark. And you mentioned that their siblings, they, they've drifted apart through their lifetimes to the point now where they're almost opposites, but they have to work together to wrap up their parents' estate and eventually deal with the ominous forces in their childhood home. Talk to me about their relationship with each other. Where did this animosity come from between them? Where does it come from with all of our siblings? <laughs> you know, we we grow up together. The only person who in your life, I mean, if you're lucky, who's ever going to physically assault you is probably a sibling. You know what I mean? You, you get those, those noogies as a kid, headlocks, you get pushed out of the bed, uh, you break your nose. You know, it's like your siblings will play rough, rougher than anyone else. And it's hard to let go of that. Those, you know, we grow up together and we feel like we have each other pegged from a young age. And it's really hard to meet and accept the adult 
that we become because we're like, no, you are the person who came into my room and stole the money I was saving after recycling cans, <laughs> um, you know, when I was nine. So our siblings get us in a vulnerable spot. And I think everyone's had that experience of going home or being around your siblings and you kind of regress to your childhood behavior. We all turn into 12 year olds. At the same time, as we get older and at a certain point, you know, we, we do lose our parents. It's kind of like we're all the sole survivors of a, of a, of a dying planet. You know, we're all, we've all been fired in a rocket from the planet of our childhood. And the only other person who remembers its language and its strange customs and what everything meant and, and who those people were is our siblings. And so you, we all have to kind of make peace with each other at a certain point. You know, the first part of the book, we learn about this story, about their family story from Louise. You know, she's the older of the two siblings. At the halfway point, almost exactly, there's a shift in perspective. And for 30 pages, we get a first-person nonstop accounting from Mark. So talk to me about this shift in perspective. What does it do for the reader? And maybe more importantly, what does it allow you to do as a writer? Well, for me, that was really important because I feel like we do it with other people, but we really do it with our sibling, which is we feel like we have their number. We know them. And one of the most disorienting moments of my life, I've got three older sisters, was one of them telling me these stories about growing up that I knew, but from her point of view. And it felt like the ground had been yanked out from under me. It was a radically different perspective. And I wanted to give readers kind of that same experience of you think you know Mark, but Mark has his own point of view. And he may be that sibling who takes up the most time and space and causes the most drama, but he's got his own perspective on things and his own reasons. So I really wanted to yank the ground out from under the reader the way my sister did it to me. And look at this. I'm reenacting my childhood trauma on everyone else. <laughs> it never stops. In a book review for NPR, Gabino Iglesias writes, Grady Hendrix's work occupies a unique interstitial space between emotional storytelling, unnerving, gory horror, and a dash of comedy. So many reviews I've read seem to comment on your talent to, you know, yes, tell a horror story, but your ability to weave in reality, you know, like those National Geographics in the attic. And, you know, of course, they touch on your humor. In this book, one of the main serious themes was about family secrets. Without spoiling anything, can you talk a bit about family secrets and, and the trauma they can cause? Sure. I mean, you know, so in my family, uh, we were very much a perfect family. We, uh, <laughs> we, we wore matchy, matchy outfits and, you know, we went places together and all this stuff. And when I was about 12 or 13, my parents got divorced and it was the greatest thing that ever happened because suddenly everyone knew we weren't perfect and we got to stop pretending we were because no one is. And the effort and, and, and the, the, the emotional work that took to look perfect, it was such a relief to get rid of it. And at that point, my sisters and I kind of made this pact and we never spoke about it. But we all started doing it. We'll talk about anything, man. We will talk about alcoholism and drinking and, and, and depression and divorce and all that stuff because it's just human stuff. There's nothing to be ashamed of there, but it is hard. You know, and there are things where you feel like you're telling stories out of school when you tell certain family stories. My wife's family, you know, I, I'll tell family stories and they are 
shocked and, and amused and intrigued. And they say, oh my gosh, your family is so wild. We don't have any stories like this in our family. And what I never say to them is, they've got plenty of stories like this in their family. They just don't tell them because they're ashamed of them and their secrets. And so, you know, it's one of those things that I just, we just lost our patience for it. And there's a downside to it. You know, sometimes you feel like you're saying too much or oversharing, or you'll tell a totally normal story about your childhood and you look around at the stunned faces and think, mm, maybe that isn't such a normal <laughs> story from childhood that everyone can relate to. On the other hand, what you get in the ability to just relax and be yourself is huge. You know, in that same NPR review, Iglesias writes, there's something magical about books where you can tell the author is having fun while writing it. And it seems this was the case for Hendrix when writing How to Sell a Haunted House. Was it fun for you to write? Do you have a, a favorite line or scene from the book, one you're particularly proud of or one that makes you smile? You know, it's funny. I love my job. I really, really love my job. But these books do not feel fun while I'm writing them. <laughs> I mean, this this one has, there are three different books with radically different back halves that I had to write to get to this fourth version that came out. We even pushed the publication date by six months because I could not land it. And I, I so it's been really gratifying that people are liking this book because I really thought my editor and I both were, you know what, we're proud of the book, but it's going to be, you know, I'm not sure people are going to connect with this just because it was such a struggle to get there. But I will say the the one thing that I really, really appreciate getting out in the world is my deep, deep horror at the Velveteen Rabbit. That was a book I read as a child and I was obsessed with because it was so hideous that these stuffed animals loved this child so much. And the child seemed not to care about them all. He left them out in the rain. They got burned when he they were dirty. It wasn't a two-way street. And I always was so sad for these stuffed animals. And you know, and it's funny being out on book tour right now, I've had several people come to me and say, thank you for speaking out <laughs> about the Velveteen Rabbit. We're a small and silent minority, but we exist. And I will also say the Velveteen Rabbit features a character called a skin horse. I don't know what that is, but that is more horrifying than anything <laughs> I would ever write. I do have to say the one line that I still makes me smile is this. Be strong, trust in the Lord, and stay hydrated. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a really good instructions if you're about to do a seance or an exorcism, you know. You don't want to get dehydrated. Then you'll, you know, you, you, you'll, oh, your defenses will be down. I guess this question is about craft, and, and I wonder if you can give us a glimpse into your brain, because you mentioned just a minute ago that it took a while for you to wrap this up. You had to do three stories and backstories to finally nail it. So my question was going to be, do you have the plot figured out before you begin or are you working it out along the way? I mean, how much of a struggle is it when you begin? What is your idea? And then how much of that original idea is in the final product, I guess? It's funny. Uh, some of the ideas there, but I really figure it out as I write. But the way I always start out is with the super abundance of overconfidence. I know this book and I know how it's going to end. And I know this and that and the other and all this stuff. And about two thirds of the way through the first draft, I realize that the ship I have constructed is sinking rapidly. And I usually sort of drag it into like at least some shallow water so I can see the wreckage once it goes down. And then I come back again and again. And what it generally is, is every pass is me getting rid of all these preconceived scenes and notions and cool set pieces and really drilling down more and more on the characters. Because that's 
what people care about. They want to read a story where something happens to people that they care about. And that's where I have to get. But yeah, I every time I start out being, I know everything about this book. <laughs> and by the time I'm handing it into my editor, I am a gibbering wreck saying this book has beaten me. Maybe we shouldn't release it. <laughs> so this is your seventh work of fiction. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, And you're known as a horror writer. You know, what draws you to the genre? And do you ever envision yourself writing anything else? Not really. I mean, I have a limited set of skills. I have to write about the world I see around me. I really cannot write about another planet or Middle Earth or a fantasy secondary world. Not because there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I loved science fiction as a kid. That's all I read. But it's not in me. I got to have the world around me. And horror, it usually deals with people that I know and the world that I see, even if it's maybe set in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s. And that is what I need to start from. And also, I think the one thing all of us have in common, every single person, is that we're all going to die at some point. And I actually find that really amazing. You know, we are all just have a set number of years. And that is just a simple fact of life. And a lot of books, death is the end. And horror is the only genre where that fact of death is right there from the beginning. <laughs> you know, one of my coworkers um, has this thing called, it's this puppet karaoke. <laughs> it's for ages 18. Dear God, what is this? <laughs> it's for ages 18 and up. And it's just an open mic and karaoke night. And it was actually featured on a PBS NewsHour segment not too long ago. But he was just putting in Slack yesterday, like, it's t time for number two, because he had already done the first one. And I'm like, oh, no, I, ca I cannot <laughs> I cannot attend this. I've just read this book. Nope. <laughs> Puppets are out for me now. <laughs> you know, but the thing is, you aren't out for puppets. There are puppets and dolls everywhere in your life. You will encounter them more. It's unavoidable. And one of the things I think is so funny is so many people say, you know, oh, dolls are so creepy. But they're thinking of those kind of porcelain-faced Victorian dolls, which, which of course are creepy. But <laughs> what about the Funkos that people have in their cubicles or the action figures they collect or the baby Yoda they have on the couch or the dolls you give your kids or the little stuffed plush things that your dog plays with? They're all around us. And, you know, those things that seem so normal, those Funkos you're collecting, your kids are going to have to deal with those one day. That's what's going to haunt them. Thank you for that, Grady. I really appreciate you drawing my attention to everything I have in my house that could come back and kill me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've talked about a lot. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? No, I mean, I really, I really feel like, A, I hope a lot of people mistake this for a real estate manual and buy the book <laughs> because... I'll take sales wherever I can get them. But no, I just feel like, you know, one day we're all going to have to clean out those houses. And I was really, really lucky. A lot of my books start from a challenge I want to set for myself. And I find something that is exploitable that isn't really talked about a lot. And in this case, our relationship with inanimate objects is something I wasn't seeing a lot of people talk about. And I really wanted to write about a family. I wrote this book, like I said, during the pandemic. I couldn't be around my family. And so the next best thing to do was make up an imaginary one I could hang out with. Well, the book is How to Sell a Haunted House. Grady Hendricks, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, man, thanks for having me. It's always good to talk to you. That was Grady Hendricks, author of the book How to Sell a Haunted House, which was published by Berkeley. 
Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.